This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. This is a wonderful event each spring that we get to celebrate the creativity of the volunteers and of the people on the campus, both the folks who are going to be reading poetry today and those who are reading fiction this afternoon. Um, all of the poets... Um, uh, who student poets have have won significant literary prizes uh, um, this year, and um, several of the poets who have read in this series over the last twenty years have gone on to publish first books of exciting poetry. So this is always a proud moment for us. One of our readers, uh, Lillian Berger, a junior majoring in English could not at the last minute be here, but I want to acknowledge her as a member of the company and introduce next a longtime Lunch Poems volunteer who's been here, service of poetry, helping set up and, and get this going all, all for years now, Joe. It's, it's Joe Bush. He recently, he informs us, purchased a log cabin on the Rogue River in Oregon, he has calculated the commute time to Berkeley will be only a little more strenuous than his current commute from Vacaville. Please welcome Joe Bush. This is from an introduction by J.D. McClatchy, who, in addition to being an editor, I think is also a poet. When he arrived at Oxford as an undergraduate, W.H. Auden went to see his tutor in literature who asked the young man what he meant to do in later life. I am going to be a poet, Auden answered. Ah, yes, replied the tutor, and began a small lecture on verse exercises improving one's prose. Auden scowled. You don't understand at all, he interrupted. I mean a great poet. to be a great poet. I would like to be so good when people hear me who have never before expressed themselves truly. They pick up their pens and they write, and they write, and they write. I want to be so good when other poets hear me, they stop writing. I want to be so good High schoolers read me without being told, if only because their mothers tell them not to. So good, my poems need no translations, not even into English. So good, the NSA can't believe its ears. I want to be so good when gun lovers hear me, they stop their banging and listen. To reason, so good. After Putin hears me, he claims me for Mother Russia. And though his eyes are set rather close and he reeks of cabbage when he blows in my ear, still, I accept his advance, at least until NATO gets its act together and makes a counteroffer. I want to be so good she will never again come so hard or for so long and so good be it for her as for me that wherever she comes, my poems are there. I want to be so good Mexicans cross the border and brave Texas only to listen, after which they retreat over the same hard ground to await the book. 
so good booksellers in Hong Kong and Singapore, out of respect for my rhymes, sell only the authorized edition for one full year. So good, the senior senator from California exposes yet another face to her adoring public as she cranes to catch my utterances on her one good side. She does not yield the floor to Senator Snowden, but, sweetheart, Snowden speaks American. I want to be so good when I recite an especially sad verse, the glaciers, yes, The glaciers speed their melting. And so before a reading, my agent be obliged to contact the consulates of Fiji and Bangladesh, that they might alert their peoples to drop their sowing. For heaven's sake, drop it now and seek higher ground. I pray the snakes and the trees are friendly. I want to be so good I could evoke humility in a trump, shame in a chaney. Gratitude in children, patience in my lover, mercy in my wife, and still I try, I try to be so good. When Pope Francis hears me, he looks up. And when she hears me, God looks down. I want to be so good I could go on and on like this forever and choose not to. But wait, on second thought. I want to be so good, all of you hate me. So good, you forgive your sinful selves and return home pure of heart without wafering. I want to be so good, when I die, you have nothing to live for. So good, when you die, I bring you back to life. I want to be so good, you take me up in memory where I reside for so long, unabridged and unmodified. You begin to forget who wrote the words and sang them and believe instead they always existed in your head alone. Therefore, I suggest that as my thoughts have now become yours, this serves to explain how you might think yourselves every bit as great. As I aim to be, thus shall the followers of the poet inherit the earth. Go on. Thank you, Joe. Your line about the high school students, I think in some ways, high school student readers of poetry are the purest readers of poetry at least was for me. You remember finding that first book of poems and sometime in high school, getting one off a shelf and feeling the shock of it? Uh, it reminds me that we have a group of high school students visiting seniors from Independence High in Brentwood come to the campus for the day. And you guys are, congratulations, you're finishing high school. We're glad you're here. Uh, our next reader is um, Andrew David King. He's a double major in philosophy and English. He's been a major force for the imagination and for intelligence on the campus among undergraduates in his years here. Um, and uh, he's participated in lunch poem student reading for the past several years. And this is going to be his last time. So please welcome him. Thanks so much for those really kind words. And thanks for everyone uh, 
who comes uh, to these sorts of events and participates in them. I'm really grateful that we have you know, such a thing on campus. <clears throat> this poem is called um, Irish Mountain. In the public restroom off a West Virginia turnpike, I had my first hallucination. On the floor, a man's skull split down the bridge of his nose, new features thrusting out from within. Another whole person in the stone's mud and shit maroon. Ellipses of flies startled when I set my hands on the cold calm of the railings, then my knees. I thought of how, just an hour earlier that day, I set a tarot card down between the graves of St. Coleman's after we drove the rental across Irish Mountain, Highway 26. Temperance, an angel cradling water from one cup to another, my way of saying that though I didn't know, I wanted to. They sat stoic, that limbo of crosses plastered back together by the guilt-filled, and I peered into the broken windows of the chapel my ancestors built to keep Ireland's white walls with them. Wind bled into the sacrament, fog coughed the peaks trees to dander, I lingered while a wasp entertained thoughts of my arm, the vase of its stinger. On that bathroom floor, all I'd soon witness, helmet of a slab fork miner, lisp from the explosion, a raccoon like a chest of drawers opened on the interstate, shirt arms of its entrails reaching, three vultures near the tracks where we waited for coal trains to press our pennies into theft-ready objects, a woman my dead grandfather had dated, found watering her lawn in sandstone, splinters of the cabin where his mother first pressed shut the eye of an elderberry. And the holler from behind our truck as we stopped outside the abandoned elementary. Y'all never seen a school before? I knew not what I had seen. I kept my eyes on the underworld as it papered the concrete around the sink. Even in heaven, bad weather, Adam seizing back into the original dot of all things before all things were. What I wanted to learn, I learned. Knelt in the cemetery's lost corner among the unbaptized, I puzzled the tombstone into one piece to read its epitaph. Prepare for death and follow me. Beneath, a swollen patch, a tempest of ants, a beetle's honeyed torso, as though in that tribe of turned-away saints, it had swallowed the amber meant for its sarcophagus. Thanks. So our next reader is David Hernandez. He studies English and philosophy. He's graduating in fall 2015. His poetry has most recently won the Joan Lee Yang Memorial Poetry Prize and been featured as a song cycle written by composer Connor Vanderbeck he has uh, new poems forthcoming in the 45th issue of the Berkeley Poetry Review. Please welcome David. Thanks, everyone, for coming. I'm going to briefly return us to the Auden theme. This poem, uh, its title comes from a line in Auden's Musée des Beaux-Arts on a pond at the edge of the wood. One, though not a pond and not a wood, indeed an edge to a body of water, and wooded portions, various forms of shrub at the base of the outcrop jutting on that ocean, a paved trail to lead and to fork. 
waterfowl surf as well as they understand to, which is to say masterfully, and vagaries of snakes subtract understanding with the punctuation of stolen burrows and damp hollows under rocks to nap in when the sun too seriously competes in their usual trade, jostling dry grasses, sediments, husks, trash, etc., imperceptibly. What I'm doing here is important, wending and building. Two, nurturing, mending, warning. That day, the sky was speaking up for once in its life. A photogenic day for once. That sky that day had to be seen. It was like a big chunk of wood, the scarred trunk of an aspen or a dinner plate, straight thrown at the wall, then caught as it shattered, the bulk of the thing in my hands, shards of the china sticking into parts of the skin. Must have hurt somewhat. But it had initially its pleasing concept of consequence to the mass and not so powerful to leave me out. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, David, very much. Our next reader is Alani Hicks Bartlett. She is completing a joint PhD in Romance Languages and Literature, Medieval Studies, and Gender and Women's Studies. Uh, Petrarch, the recent Italian poet, Shakespeare, Tennyson, Plath, and Oliver are among her favorite poets. Please welcome Alani. You hear? Thank you so much. Um, the poem I'm going to be reading is called The Rut or the Ambuscade. It's about a deer. Solitary dreamer of mine, remember when you browsed through the forest, giving a sweet, endless look to the steel-lighted sky, and how you shied away from the swinging boys who, in their ferocious malfasions, always threw stones at the last of your peckish brood. And remember how, when you sensed the soft chatter of rabbits, whistling and rustling through a crust of twigs and leaves, you turned your enamel eyes to that low ground. But oh, as soon as I made my way across this shattering distance to reach you in your shrouded, tight-lipped slumber, remember how the rain slowly began to click through the canopy, a velvet-fingered tapping before the avalanche of sharp metal bells the frenzy of the gilded chains of a tempestuous gypsy with a pomegranate mouth, vibrant and bleeding, the clash of a Valkyrie's silver amulets in perpetual bellicose motion. And oh, as I loaded our failing caravan with our carefully selected herbs and our well-oiled cloths and tent and gathered our saddlebags, dark and sticky from use like the thick, viscous syrup of the black birch trees, a sickly olive-hued moon towered over me, casting its tubercular sheen on the low vegetation torn by your precious incisors. And see now, now that I have reached you, how can I awake your stalled sleeping heart? But look, all of this excess and detritus here. The birches are peeling, lacing their thin ribbons like reedy careful bandages around the seething wound. The downy catkins were shorn from their stems, in your dodge from the bullet hawks and the fierce salvo you hadn't learned to expect, 
a torrent whisking away your spirit and leaving even your pedungal exposed. And look how suddenly my hands are imbrued in your vital sap and how all of your strength and furtive compassion and antlered shreds of velvet are now mere morsels of adornment to the trophies of all the greedy monarchs. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, dear. Um, rain clicking through the canopy, beginning to climb. I've heard that sound, and I've not seen that phrase before. Our next reader is Alexandra Coppell. She's a senior English major. She's a winner of the Fabili Hoffer Prize and the American Poet Prize and the Essay on Integrity Prize. She facilitates a short story workshop for the Chernin program. She loves to write stories and poetry. Please welcome Alexandra. Lessons on Loneliness. It's okay to be alone. I grew up in a quiet, silent street in an empty, silent house that had an old black kitchen table with cracked, rough wood. And I would just sit there with ease, feeling the grooves of the wood, smelling the breath of cut grass, feeling the calm suburban breeze that blew through the window. I would skip class, hurry home, just to sit in silence and be alone. At some point in college, between all the frameworks and facts and supposed knowledge that slid through my mind as fast as those pointless PowerPoint slides, between all the roommates, the floor mates, the soul mates, the f- mates, and the strangers with the same plain faces, slices of white bread, between the hallways, filled with quasi-students, filled with looping music, with looping conversation reverberating off of heads, off of me, I forgot something that I used to know, that it's okay to be alone. I forgot how clear my thoughts used to be when I could only hear the silence of an empty house, when there was nothing to do but feel the grooves of my kitchen table. At some point between the emails and texts and tweets that make my weeks feel on repeat, between the pictures from Helsinki and the news from the Middle East and the checking and the dumb scrolling that make me on edge like a doctor on call, wasting lives instead of saving with the always ringing, always buzzing of my phone, I forgot what it could even mean to be alone. And while they are linking in and linking arms and they are posting pictures of all that fun, and while she is on Craigslist searching for a roommate and he is on Match.com longing for the one, I'm longing for a loneliness so great, searching for a silence so sound that it surrounds me like a lucid, limpid wave, covers me like a blanket, enshrouds me like the darkness of night, like the darkness of that tough wood of my rough kitchen table, and I am able to hear nothing but breath. And there is no more checking. It is everything more than enough. Thanks. Thank you. 
you. That was. <laughs> uh, our next reader is Carlota Salvador Mejias. She's a graduating senior studying political theory and comparative European politics in the political science department. She's particularly interested in Wittgensteinian aspect perception as its, and its possible relevance to politics. And uh, she's also interested in the philosophy of friendship and how this bears on her poetry. You'll now get to hear. Incidentally, you won't get to hear that because the introduction has nothing to do with the poem that I'm about to read. Sorry. Um, the sonnet has no title. A rose is a rose is a rose is a coming together by coming apart. Three petals crush floored in the supermart. Rose is a kid, curious, is a play. To enclover and enclosure, they say... Send letters bound in iron strings. To heart with what flutters soft, small, and away. Smart opposed to lilt a spine and curve. Obey. Rose comes to mother. Rose lifts her small hands. Where's the flower, mama? Where's her flower? Petals are smushed to blush on pale flesh. You tell me you remember all your plans and how light would filter through the bower. I like where pink calloused into your palm. Thank you. Thank you, Carla. Well, sure had to do with perception, which sure had to do with. So our next reader is Andy Nui. He's a fourth-year student studying English and molecular and cell biology. His interests include experimental poetry and organic chemistry. The poem he is reading today was written under the direction of visiting Holloway professor, um, a poet from England who was here last year, Keiston Sutherland. Please welcome Andy. Uh, so this poem is inspired by a logic class I took here at Berkeley. So you'll see how that features throughout this poem. And it's called Shkolovsky's Love Letter. One. To Ava. I speak only in hieroglyphs around you. I carve out language in your languid, liquid body. Not once do you glance down. Instead, the clay melts when I reach for water reeds. If a grove can spare sap, or a quarry yield stone, if the heavenly vault cannot hold celestial fires and the ocean cannot swallow salt and foam, so ink, you sheep skin, should bleed into parchment. So symbols, you dead heifer, should inscribe your smooth navel. Circumcised embryonic ribbon, placental substratum by which to fondle fountain pen shampoo and to lather squid intestine calligraphy. With love, Victor Shklovsky. Two, there exists a person named Ava. If Victor's around Ava, then Victor speaks something, and that something is hieroglyphs. 
There exists a thing and another thing, such that Victor carves the first thing in the second thing, and the first thing is language, and the second thing is a body, and the body is languid, and the body is liquid, and this languid, liquid body belongs to Ava. It is not the case that Ava glances at Victor. If there exists something such that Victor reaches for this thing, and this thing's water reads, then there exists a thing such that this thing is clay, and this clay melts. If it is the case that there exists a thing and another thing such that the first thing spares the second thing, and this first thing is a grove, and the second thing is a sap, or there exists something and another something such that the first thing yields the second thing, and the first thing is a quarry, and the second thing is a stone, and it is not the case that there exists something and another something such that the first thing holds the second thing, and the first thing is a vault, and this vault is heavenly, and the second thing is fire, and the fire is celestial, and it is not the case that there exists a thing and another thing and another other thing such that the first thing swallows the second and third thing, and the first thing is an ocean, and the second thing is salt, and the third thing is foam. Then there exists a thing and another thing, such as the first thing bleeds into the second thing, and the first thing is ink, and the second thing is parchment. And there exists a thing and another thing, such as the first thing inscribes the second thing, and the first thing is symbols, and the second thing is a navel, and the navel is smooth. There exists a person named Victor, and Victor is with the thing, and this thing is love. Three, there exists an X such that E of P, V, E of A, then S, V, X, and X of H. There exists an X, there exists a Y such that V, X, Y of C, and X of L, and Y of B, and Y of L prime, and Y of L double, double prime L, and Y, E of B prime. It is not the case that E, V of G. There exists an X such that V, X of R, and X of Y, then there exists an X such that X of C, and X of M. There exists an X, there exists a Y such that X, Y of S and X of G and Y of A, or there exists an X, there exists Y such that X, Y of Y and X of Q and Y of S prime, and it is not the case that there exists an X, there exists a Y such that X, Y of H and X of V and X of H prime and Y of F and Y and C, and it is not the case that there exists an X, there exists a Y, there exists a Z such that X, Y, C of S double prime, S and X of O and Y of S triple prime and Z of F, then there exists an X, there exists a Y, such that X, Y of B, and X of I, and Y of P, and there exists an X, there exists a Y, such that X, Y of I prime, and X of Y, and Y of N, and Y of M. There exists an X, such that V of P, V, X of W, and X of L. Thank you. So it turns out if you put together a molecular biology major and an English major and a logic course and an experimental English poetry course, you can dance to it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Our next reader is Claire Marie Stanchek. She's a PhD candidate in the Department of English at Berkeley where she teaches class on 19th century poetry and creative writing. She's been a wonderful presence in our department. Her poems have appeared or are forthcoming in several magazines, Oversound, Animal, Berkeley Poetry Review, and Typo. Please welcome Claire Marie. Garden. Hear the people stream, cluster, crouch, holding out cameras. Hear the people confer in small groups before dispersing into porous walls. Hear the people hope for continued hope. 
Here more people act in the place of the other people who again were acting in the place of other people before them. Here the people glance sidelong at their reflections in the window. Here the people gesture and nod, turning toward and away from one another. Here the people murmur in vague health and hope for continued complacency. Here for a moment the amaranths think thoughts that the people had strangled with their presence. Here the people collect, holding cameras out to the other people. Here the people step back several paces, looking up at the gargoyle. Here the people imagine the garden with no people. Here the people clip by, holding smooth leather satchels. Here the people feel less hopeful than they did before. Here the people wish the other people out of the garden. Here the people murmur thanks for hope. Here for a moment, suddenly, the garden is empty of people. Here the people clip by in wingtips, their ties flapping in the open breeze. Here the people avoid including in their photographs the other people taking photographs. Here the people collect in clusters, holding cameras against the amaranths, holding cameras at arm's length, holding cameras to their faces. Here the people feel inexplicably bereft. Here for a moment the amaranths are transported with thoughts beyond expression, thoughts strangled by the presence of the people. Here the people gesture with bags slung over one shoulder. Here suddenly one pigeon flaps, graceful as a thought, across the garden to perch on a gargoyle. Here the people feel more hopeful and more forgiving of themselves than they did before. Here the people feel more hopeless than before. Here the people feel spiritually realigned. Here the people confer in small groups. Here the people are invaded by a sudden fantasy of a garden without people. Here the people bend in pairs over the placards. Here for a moment the garden is filled with amaranths free suddenly of people. Here the people walk as though unspeakably tired, as though pressed down by an exhaustion beyond individual exhaustion. Here people hold their cameras up. Here more people again hold cameras against amaranths and at arm's length, and again they hold cameras up against the bushes and step back and point their cameras at gargoyled arches and at the amaranths together. Here this fountain reproduces itself endlessly in the photographs of the people. Here the people turn away and toward one another, nodding and bending into the placards. Here the people meet the eyes of the people, looking at them coolly, and coolly look away. Here the people step thoughtfully around the fountain before bringing the cameras up to their faces. Here the people clasp hands behind their back, looking up to frown at the gargoyles. Here the people disperse into porous walls as their replacements arrive. Here the people feel hopeful and hope to be more hopeful in the future. Here the people walk with one hand in a pocket. Here the people accidentally meet the eyes of other people and look away. Here the people take three steps back, looking steadily up at the gargoyle before bringing the cameras up to their faces. Here the people consider the fountain and hold their cameras to their faces. Here for a moment the people wait, paused at the porous doorway. Here, this fountain manufactures itself endlessly in the same photograph, in hundreds of cameras. Here, the people suddenly wish the other people gone. Here, the people are invaded by a sudden fantasy. Here, the people feel healthy and realigned, deciding to feel hopeful about the future. Here, the people feel healthy and hopeful. Here, the people wait for the other people to be finished before taking a photograph. 
before they step in and take the same photograph. Here the people walk with almost limping steps slowly. Here for a moment, all the people have suddenly left the garden. Here for a moment, the amaranths join their colors to the breeze. Here the people linger in the porous doorways. Here for a moment, the garden sways. Here for a moment, the amaranths nod and sway. Here again, the garden is permeated by clusters of people, people holding cameras, holding open leaflets, bending over the placards. Thank you. Wow, gorgeous. Meant to be tender and scary at the same time. Wonderful. Thank you, Claire Marie. Our final reader is Mary Wilson. She's a graduate student in English. She's studying 20th century literature and poetics, and she's also begun to publish. Her work has appeared online in Coconut, in Anomalous, and in Everyday Genius. Please welcome Mary. Thank you. Um, this poem is called Technology is Cyclical. Uh, it's a quote from Dennis Duffy on 30 Rock, if any of you love 30 Rock. He's trying to sell pagers. Um, technology is cyclical. It's amazing with the new televisions how far your living room window can be from a neighbor's window through which you can watch a television. Just last night, while opening the seltzer bottle labeled Jameson for the future, so as not to be in doubt or to run out of space, the worst condition, I invented this game of light fixtures where everyone ducks in the dark and is saved. We optimize our list of contacts with just this. We thought it was a good idea. Grab a mirror and do something spectacular only from a distance. Something unusual like, try your neighbor on the video. She was baking and asked if she could join me. I said, fine. I care about us finding some warmth between us. Think slow and ahead. Think of family members calling from across the video with colors in their mouths to say this, how the light just falls off anyone because we've gotten so used to it. Thank you. Thank you. Now, for a moment, we have the light fall off everyone. Would all the readers please stand up so we can say thank you again? It was a wonderful <laughs> set of readings. Congratulations on your prizes and your publications. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.